Welcome to the Innovation and in Government Show, sponsored by Kerasoft. Each month, we'll talk with industry experts who enable innovation and make government more responsive and secure by advancing key technologies. Now, here's your host, Jason Miller. Welcome to the discussion. My guest today is Kevin McDonough, an advisory systems engineer at Dell Technologies. Kevin, welcome to the discussion. Thank you. Nice to be here, Jason. Let me set just a little context for our conversation. About a third of all cyber incidents federal agencies faced last year were, were unknown or outside the typical spam, phishing, and web authentication vectors. The Office of Management Budget says that the prevalence of this attack vector suggests additional steps should be taken to ensure agencies appropriately categorize the vector of incidents during reporting. While this may be a categorization issue, it also may be that the variety and volume of attacks are harder to identify and characterize. The increase of cyber attack vectors over the last year of the pandemic specifically has been stunning. Experts say ransomware attacks alone are up 500% since March, 2020. And experts found in 2020, 22% of data breaches involved phishing. A year later, that number increased to 36%. And scammers are even more successful, exfiltrating data or taking over systems 57% of the time, which is a 2% increase over the previous year. In addition to the number of attacks increasing, researchers found on average, it takes 280 days to identify and contain a cyber attack. Now, all of these statistics once again prove just how hard it is to protect systems and the data, and it will continue to be this difficult. So what can agencies do to stay ahead of attackers? Well, that's where my guest comes in. Once again, I'm joined by Kevin McDonough, an advisory systems engineer at Dell Technologies. Now, Kevin, I, I laid out the, the horror of a cyber attacks that it is and, and all the things that are happening. So I'm gonna throw you the hard question. What can agencies do to protect from cyber attacks? And especially as we talk about remote workforce, in COVID-19 and the hybrid workforce and all the different complexities that we see. Right. Uh, the expanded workforce certainly didn't make things easier. In fact, it, it, in many ways, it expanded the attack surface. Um, but that said, it, it's kind of it's important to understand that we need to set up a layered defense, uh, defense in depth, if you will. So when I talk to organizations about what are the things that they, they need to do, I always reference the uh, National Institute of Standard Technology Cybersecurity Framework. Um, because it provides swim lanes, um, it's, it, because it, again, as I said, it's such a big topic. Uh, there's so many aspects to it. It's just a good way to, uh, you know, break it into bite-sized chunks. So uh, those components are identify, protect, detect, restore, and recover. Uh, so if we put them into those swim lanes, it's a uh, it's a great way to uh, not only make sure we're we're drilling down on where the exposures are, where the vulnerabilities are, but uh, you know, as I said before, setting up defense in depth. Um, if I expand on that, you know, for years, many organizations really have spent all their money and time on tools for identify, protect, and detect. Um, but if you just think about that, and again, what's going on with the increase in uh, cyber attacks, uh, just by definition, a zero-day exploit, if you will, would would evade those uh, those tools, right? Because it's a it's a previously unknown vulnerability, an unknown uh, uh, tool, what have you. So, you know, while those tools are looking for signatures, um, you know, and finding them in real time, and then once they find them, they're eradicating them. There's no other level to that. So, if, if the adversary gets past that, um, you know, those primary defenses, um, you know, they're in your environment and you know, dwelling within your environment for a significant amount of time, which allows them to map out everything. You bring up this idea of defense in depth. Now, for years, that was what the idea was, but this was a defense in depth that was around 
the old moat and high walls. And, and what right. you're talking about is not that type of defense in depth. Maybe let's maybe put a finer definition on that. It, it includes that, but we just have to understand that it really everything is based on the value of the data. So again, using your, your analogy about the castle, the, the crown jewels are, are going to be in the, the lowest basement inside the middle of, uh, of the castle. And then, then protecting out, you're going to have things that are protected by the walls of the castle, um, you know, the boat and all of those different things. But the way we are in society, it's a very in interconnected world. Um, you know, everything's about access. Everything's about availability. So as we extend out to the edge, uh, we're going to have exposures. We have to understand that. But the critical data, uh, the tier zero, tier one, uh, foundational aspects, you know, the existential aspects of our of an organization, that's what we need to protect um, at, at the fullest. So that's what I mean by defense in depth. It's really based on um, things that are really valuable, need to be uh, in the safest place. And as you expand out, as you uh, expose yourself to the internet, to, you know, uh, constituents, what have you, um, you know, we, we have to have tools, but we have to understand it's just a big attack surface. We have 10 fingers, we have 10 toes, and there's more holes than, than we can plug. <laughs> and this attack service is, is expanding, as you talked about at the beginning of our conversation a little bit with the pandemic and the remote workforce. A lot of folks out here say it's all about the data. Just protect the data. Don't worry about the devices. Don't worry about it. The systems, don't worry about if you protect the data, then everything else is fine. It sounds to me like you're saying that, but also you have to do more than just worry about the yeah. data. Yeah, I mean, the data is, is important, but if you think about the devices, um, those are the access, access points, if you, if you will, right? So, um, you know, going to this expanded uh, remote workforce because of COVID, you know, let's kind of think about that. So uh, a work computer is sitting on uh, a dining room table, right? Not everybody has a, a, has a home office. Um, so, you know, how is that connected to the internet? Is it on a VPN? Are they doing shopping on their own? Are the kids using it for homework? You know, all of those different things. So from a device standpoint and the data that's on there, we can lock it down, right? But, but the access, so, uh, you know, anybody clicks on the link, you know, phishing is still the biggest way to go. Um, it's in, right? I'm on the network. My kid decides he wants to go buy a toy, um, you know, based on an email he got, he clicks on it and, and we're off and running. And really the biggest thing I saw with COVID was, um, you know, the well-intentioned exposure, right? At, you know, we wanted to help people. Uh, so emails went out. He said, certainly I want to help the folks that are struggling to, you know, put food on the table. They click on the link uh, and, and found out that was how the, the adversaries got in. So the data is important, but again, we have to understand that as we present ourselves to the world, whether it's in a marketplace, whether it's our remote workforce, um, those are vulnerability points that we really, at the end of the day, can't close all of them. You mentioned phishing is still the biggest attack vector. What are some of the other trends you're seeing either around attack vectors or maybe some of the techniques that the bad actors are using? Yeah, so if we think about it, money is still king, right? Um, their main objective is to get paid. You know, there was a 42, I think it was $42 million ransom paid out by a, a, a computer uh, manufacturer. So the money's there. So really when we think about the techniques, you know, the phishing, um, you know, the ways that they get in, those are relatively the same, um, but because money is so big, that's where they're getting in the end of it. You know, that's where they're innovating. And they're really innovating in my mind on the back end in terms of 
Um, once they get in, uh, they're getting really good at hiding, really good at staying on the radar, really uh, good at understanding what tools um, you know, that the people that are trying to attack use uh, and all of those different things. Uh, so that's, that's really the biggest thing uh, above and beyond that, uh, coupled with, you know, some of the things that uh, just came out like our evil uh, ransomware, it basically steals Windows credentials, right? So they're in, uh, they can start uh, doing what they need to do in terms of uh, getting command and control and taking action on their objectives. Um, brute force attacks are another big thing. Uh, you know, I, I tell the organizations that I talk to, let's understand that a brute force attack will be 100% successful given enough time, given enough resources. So now we have nation states backing these advanced persistent threats. So they're able to check all those boxes. So where it was a heavy lift, um, you know, it's not as heavy now. And as I said, if, you know, it, it could be very quick, it could be a long time, but at the end of the day, it's gonna be successful. Uh, so, you know, we're seeing the less spray and pray attacks, you know, i.e. the not petchas, and we're seeing very, very, very targeted attacks, Colonial Pipeline, Garmin, um, and, and such, where uh, they're, they're attacking a, a particular organization. So those are some of the things I'm seeing. And then really just to close out that, um, you know, they're really starting to work in an enterprise manner. And, and by that, I mean, uh, if you think about all the tasks that need to be accomplished to successfully um, you know, uh, get money or, you know, have their attack uh, succeed, um, there are different components. So, you know, they're, they're starting to say, hey, you know, advanced persistent threat over there, you're really good at reconnaissance. Another one's really good at delivery. At the end of the day, we're going to, we're going to, we're going to split that $42 million, but we're going to be able to do it much more efficient, efficiently and that kind of thing. One time hackers are just hackers. Now they each have their as a service feature. I'll do the reconnaissance as a service. You'll pay me a percentage. I'll do the exfiltration as a service. Absolutely. Kind of crazy. Yeah, if you need to borrow bots, you can go to the dark web and, and uh, rent some bots to be able to do this kind of thing. So it's, like I said, such a big money-making operation. Um, you know, things like that are happening. I want to talk about ransomware for a second because it gets a lot of attention. We saw what happened, whether it's Colonial Pipeline or the JBS Foods or other or others over the last uh, year or so. The government, though, seems to have done fairly well against ransomware attacks or they've not faced them as much. Do you get a sense of that's just dumb luck or is that because there's no money behind it? Like, help me understand why from a trend perspective, what are you seeing when it comes to ransomware and the federal agencies? Yeah, it, it's it, this is pure conjecture on my part, but I would suspect we only hear about 5% of all the attacks. So that's number one. Uh, it's not in the federal government's best interest to say, hey, um, we were attacked. But if we think about breaches or exfiltration, uh, I myself, my fingerprints and you know my SF-86 form were stolen, right? Um, so those are the kind of the big things that happen. So it, you have the money-making ventures, but then you also have the ability to go in uh, and exfiltrate data and then sell that on the dark web, um, you know, use it down the line. So I think it happens a lot. I'm sure it's one of the most attacked vectors that we have, probably uh, apart from the financial industry. Um, but it really, um, it doesn't bode well for, you know, for those agencies to say we got hit. Again, pure, pure conjecture on my part. <laughs> I think the first time we hear about an agency facing a ransomware attack, that will be big news for all of us in many ways. But right. 
so far, so good. Uh, we're going to take a quick break before we do that. And then when we come back, we'll get into kind of how to solve this, major, all these problems. From your perspective, are a lot of these attacks getting worse or agencies and, and other organizations just not doing what they should be doing? Because when you look at some of these attacks, they're, they're not using advanced attacks. They're, they're finding a hole in a system that wasn't patched and the patch has been around for ever. Ever, thank you. <laughs> what, like, or is it? Or are we seeing new, new uh, events for the zero-day attacks and APTs that maybe we didn't know about, and that's why it's, it seems worse. Um, I think it's 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 both. To be honest with you, Jason, um, you know the low-hanging fruit, if you will. You know, looking for those the vulnerabilities where it hasn't been patched. The, the one that comes to mind is the city of Baltimore got hit twice with a patch that existed. Uh, so that's a that's a really good example, but. Uh, so I think, you know, the low hanging fruits always going to be there from, you know, if I were to classify the startup adversaries, um, but we're really starting to see uh, a lot more, as I said previously, focused attacks going after the big organizations that they know are going to pay, that they know don't want to be in the newspaper, that kind of thing. Um, and the forces that are behind those, you know, backed by nation states, I, I think we're starting to see a lot more of that. Um, because the, the ransoms are, are really getting big. But I, I think in tandem, you know, uh, it, it's a combination of they're increasing. We are not reacting quick enough. That's the biggest thing. And then to be honest with you, I don't think we're using the right tools for defense or we're, you know, we're trying to manipulate what we've done forever, hoping it would protect us from this new modern threat. I was looking for some good news there saying, hey, if we just kind of cleaned up the hygiene side, we could all be a little better. But uh, you're, you're, you, you did not provide that good news. However, the next segment, you will. I know you will. So we're going to take a quick <laughs> break. When we come back, we'll continue our conversation. You're listening to the discussion Innovation in Government, sponsored by Kerasoft on Federal News Network. Overnight, the pace of digital transformation accelerated. You responded and showed how technology can create opportunities to drive innovation and encourage citizen confidence. Is your federal agency ready for what comes next? Dell Technologies is 100% committed to your mission. Whether you're providing critical citizen services, innovating for the next generation, or securing the nation, we bring the right technology, a secure supply chain, targeted expertise, and far-reaching vision to help guide your journey. Visit us at DellTechnologies.com federal today. Welcome back. You're listening to the discussion Innovation in Government, sponsored by Kerasoft on Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller. My guest today is Kevin McDonough, an advisory systems engineer at Dell Technologies. Now, Kevin, before break, we started list, we, you, you, were, you were listing all the problems in the world. You made us scared. I don't want to turn on my computer now. I don't want to go on my cell phone. Uh, luckily, we know that there are some solutions to this problem, and it's not all about building a higher wall or building a better uh, a gate. It's really about a, a, as you mentioned, defense in depth approach. So what does that look like? What can agencies do today? And what's some of the longer term goals? Yeah, it's it's not all doom and gloom. Um, we do have to uh, understand that um, it, it's probably going to, you know, we're probably going to declare a cyber event, you know, and not declare the disaster recovery event. I mean, that's just the, the way things are. So if we kind of look at the tools that have been around forever, like the Lockheed Martin cyber kill chain, which is just a way to identify the steps that an adversary has to take in order to have a successful campaign. The good news is, you know, we're getting better at, you know, stopping those attacks earlier uh, to the beginning, you know, towards uh, reconnaissance. But now we have tools where uh, ultimately, 
you know, because we've segmented the value of the data, our really valuable data, the crown jewels that I mentioned before, um, we are preventing the adversaries from getting to command and control through isolation uh, and through advanced immutability. Uh, so at the end of the day, even if we haven't patched anything, even if, you know, one of our users clicks on the wrong thing, uh, we can stop every single attack at that command and control phrase, phase, uh, which means the adversaries can never take action on their objectives and we win. Um, so that to me is the good news. And instead of, you know, getting bogged down by the, the absolute um, uh, complexity, the size of the issue, you know, really kind of break it down to, you know, ultimately where can I stop them? Uh, you know, what simple things can I do to protect my critical data? Uh, and again, beyond federal organizations, you know, the small mom and pops where, it, to be honest, as I mentioned before, Jason, it's an existential question. How do I keep my doors open uh, in order to stay in business? And, you know, from a government perspective, I don't want to be that agency, right? You said it before, I don't want to be the first. Uh, so I think that's the good news there. You know, there's guidance from CISA, guidance from NSA, uh, guidance from the FBI, uh, you know, the corresponding European um, agencies. And it really comes down to, you know, let's just isolate our critical data, um, you know, separate it from the networks, uh, make a set up a physical separation and then a logical air gap separation, if you will, um, so that we know that there's no way the adversaries can get to that critical data. But then again, it goes to what, what we've been talking about, defense in depth. You don't want to put all of your data uh, in that uh, isolated enclave. You just want to, you know, save that for the critical stuff. And that honestly is where the, the hard discussions come in, um, you know, because if you asked a, a business owner, they're going to say, my stuff's the most valuable thing in the organization. So that's where leaning on somebody who's done this a lot, understands the business impact assessment, understands. Uh, you bring up a very interesting point about the understanding the business impact. And I think we should go down that path a little bit. Okay. It's one thing to say here are my crown jewels, but if everything's a crown jewel, then nothing is a crown jewel. Correct. So what are you seeing when you talk to agency customers? How do you help them? What, what advice do you have to say, okay, how do you take that step back and say, this database is more important than that database. And this is why, how, how are you helping agencies do that? Yeah, we, we, we come back. It really, in many ways, it's, uh, it's akin to a workshop. Um, but what we've done and, and internally, we call it a critical rebuild list. It's a list of things that are, are derived from historical data, um, you know, from past attacks. So again, I, I go to NotPetya, Maersk had their data, they didn't have DNS. Well, that's certainly something we wanna have in the vault. Uh, intellectual property, um, you know, infrastructure, the network diagrams, all of those different things. That's the list of what we call a critical rebuild that we always suggest, you know, organizations start here. Uh, that's, you know, at a minimum, start protecting those kinds of things so we can recover from attack and then Let's peel back the onion uh, and understand what are those critical things. And to be honest with you, Jason, um, it's, it's, it's a phased approach, right? Let's start off with that critical stuff and then they understand the capabilities and the protection it provides. Um, you know, it, it's, uh, it becomes very, very clear. So if an organization already has a business impact assessment done, if they've already done disaster recovery tests, you know, those kinds of things, um, they're, they're very far along the way in terms of, uh, identifying what data needs to go into that isolated environment. Are you finding that as agencies and OMB required agencies to identify their high value assets, they're better at this conversation? Or again, are you finding the opposite that they think everything's high value? Um, I, I think their initial knee jerk reaction is everything's of high value, but they're getting, they're getting better at it for sure. 
Um, the one thing I, I think they struggle with is the legacy systems, um, you know, where patches aren't available, but they still provide a critical uh, aspect to that particular agency's, um, you know, capabilities, what they're supposed to do, like DOD supporting a mission. Um, you know, so that's, that's where the difficulty comes in, where it doesn't fit into an easy place. I can't use modern tools to be able to protect that data. Um, but that, you know, once they do the knee jerk, everything needs to go in. We take a step back when, as you said, we define if everything's important and nothing's important, uh, you know, their cheeks turn red, they get a little embarrassed and then, <laughs> and then we can start forward. When, you, when I talk to CIOs and, and when I talk to the, the, the CISOs and the federal agencies, I, I think they like to talk a lot about what their high value assets are and, and how they're identifying them and how they're protecting them. But then it kind of comes back around to this idea of, well, it's up to the business side, it's up to the business needs and, right. and we're really depending on them. So I think, again, going back to what you said earlier, it really does take that partnership to, to get it done. You mentioned the one misconception is that if everything is is important, nothing's important. And then the other misconception is trying to understand kind of that that separation that's needed. You, you can't just protect everything. What are, what are some of the other misconceptions you see as you or you hear from agencies? Yeah, so uh, my, my pet peeve misconception is really um, kind of made up of three different components. So I'll kind of go through it. Uh, again, it's based on the fact that from a data protection standpoint, we've utilized the venerable three to one model for forever, right? Three copies, uh, two different media types, one offsite. So really what I'm seeing agencies and other people is they're adding to one of those different components, right? Um, I'm going to have more than three copies. I'm going to have more than two different types. I'm going to make sure my disaster recovery is more uh, secure, but they're really not addressing ultimately what needs to be done. So um, you know, again, in line with what CISA, FBI, all of them say, you need to add another one. So I always tell organizations, you know, to, to, to protect our modern, you know, to protect ourselves from the modern attack surface, it's a three, two, one, one. Uh, we can't reutilize, we can't retool, you know, things that we've done before. Uh, one of those big things is the term immutability. Uh, this this uh, gets me wrapped around the axle, if you will. Immutability by definition means it can't be changed, right? Uh, can't be modified in any way, shape or form. But if we understand that any uh, tool, whether it's a platform, software, what have you, if it's in production, it is ultimately vulnerable. Uh, yes, or things are harder to break down. Um, yes, we can set up defense in depth, you know, multi-factor authentication, all of those different things. But we just have to say, and we just have to understand if it's in production, it's vulnerable. Immutable storage in production doesn't exist. <laughs> it has to be coupled with something else. And again, this is just my humble opinion, but uh, if it's coupled with isolation, uh, it's, if it's coupled with roles and access uh, and all of those different things, now we're, now we're cooking with gas. Now we do have advanced immutability. We are able to meet the requirement and definition of what immutable is. Uh, you know, it can't be changed. Uh, it can't be modified, deleted, altered in any way, shape or form. So if I, if I look in an attack, um, that's ultimately what I want to revert to. But if I'm, you know, if it's a, if it's data protection recovery aspect, that's where immutable technology in, uh, you know, in the production environment is perfect. I, I'm not poo-pooing it. I'm just trying to understand, you know, uh, my pet peeve is to cap it, cap its capabilities. It's not going to be the tool to protect you from a catastrophic attack, right? Because at the end of the day, it, it's vulnerable. Uh, the other one is, uh, again, uh, people out deciding that if I just do um, a metadata kind of crawl from a 
observation standpoint or if I set thresholds, uh, I'm going to be protected. That that to me is insanity. Um, you know, threshold setting is is ultimately at the end of the day an art form. You really need to implement a tool that's going to look for uh, actual indicators of compromise. You know actual indicators that an adversary is in your environment, actual indication that adversaries have somehow uh, encrypted your data, changed the extension, you know, done all of those different things. That's ultimately the tool uh, that needs to be done and coupled with, um, you know, the isolated data. So now we have isolation, we have immutability, and now we have the intelligence to understand, you know, is this a good copy or is this not a good copy? And if it's not a good copy, can I proactively, you know, take care of it and, and understand that it's going to be clean? So in the event of a, of recovery from the vault, uh, I can do that rather quickly. But uh, but immutability, you know, being used as the ultimate uh, tool for, uh, you know, surviving a cyber attack um, makes that makes my eyes roll back in my head. <laughs> well, we don't want to do that. No, no. we are we are, we are almost we are almost out of time. So Kevin, before I let you go. What's the big takeaway from our conversation today? What's the message that agencies and other organizations really need to keep in mind as they are trying to deal with this increase, the, the volume, the veracity, the, the velocity of attack vectors? Yeah, so if I, if I were really to wrap it all up and, and, and put a bow on it for, for, per se, uh, in, in looking at your defense in depth, uh, the litmus test I use is the insider, right? How resilient are you against an insider? Uh, what would you do if you were hit with a zero day exploit? And do you have any kind of tools that are going to help you find those indicators of compromise that they're in, you know, doing dwell time? So if we look at the insiders and couple back to the beginning, you know, uh, the remote workforce, uh, we really have to define insiders as, you know, uh, you know, not only the compromised user, not only the uh, upset uh, admin, but you know, we have carelessness. I mentioned before, well-meaning users, negligent users, oblivious users. You know, all of those different things need to be defined as an insider because, as we've been talking about, an adversary just needs one hook in and they're in. Um, the second litmus test, as I said before, is the zero-day exploit. Uh, again, your disaster recovery tools, uh, your data protection tools, uh, aren't made from that from made for that from a use case standpoint because, again, you have to uh, eradicate that attack, right? And there's no way for your identify, protect, and detect tools to be able to find that proactively. So uh, having an area, again, that's isolated, um, you know, essentially a zero oxygen environment allows organizations to, you know, um, forensically eradicate those without affecting the production environment. Uh, and then the third one is dwell time. Um, understand that it exists, understand that it's out there, um, you know, uh, add to the tools that you already have in terms of you know, looking for those 20, 25 attack vectors that the, that the adversaries are always using uh, to be able to get in and then have the way to be able to react to that. Uh, so really, as, as, as I close it out, it's, it's, it's doable. Uh, it is not all doom and gloom, as, as I said previously. Um, we just have to understand that it's not a matter of if, but when. <laughs> the attacks will come exactly right uh, and, and and when they do you got to be ready for them so exactly. i think you've laid out a, a pretty good way for agencies to start thinking about this and continue to think about this because uh as you said think it's not a matter of if it's it's always a matter of when you know it needs to be about people process and technology the coordination of all three of those things you can't just do things in a vacuum so whether that sticks or not i just wanted to kind of throw that in Kevin, this has been a fascinating conversation. I do appreciate your time, but unfortunately we are out of time. Let me thank my guest. Kevin McDonough is an advisory systems engineer at Dell Technologies. Kevin, thank you so much for the time today. 
Thank you. Take care and stay safe. Thank you. I'm Jason Miller, and you've been listening to the discussion Innovation in Government, sponsored by Kerasoft on Federal News Network. For more on this discussion, visit federalnewsnetwork.com and search innovation. Thank you for listening to the Innovation in Government show, sponsored by Kerasoft on Federal News Network. The entire discussion can be found on demand at federalnewsnetwork.com, keyword innovation.